Another very important announcement before I begin the lesson. My wife insists that I make this announcement. You see, she's wearing a new, uh, uh, what is that, jacket. Uh, a new jacket, and it has one of those gray things on it that indicates you stole it. <laughs> and, uh, and I can attest that she didn't steal it. Uh, the salesperson failed to take it off, and she didn't know that until she got here tonight. And I knew that she was concerned about it, because when her eyes get real big, I know that uh, she's really concerned. <laughs> and so she wanted me to uh, make you aware uh, that um, she bought that, and, uh, and uh, so she's going to take it back and let them take that off of there. So. Freeman has, still has connections with the police department, but <laughs> it won't be necessary to call those connections in. <laughs> we appreciate your presence uh, tonight, and we are glad that you are uh, here, and we're glad that the weather has, uh, has given us a break. Uh, afterwards, uh, this morning when we left, we left in uh, dry weather, and tonight so far dry, and uh, we're thankful for that. We appreciate the rain, but we're glad for the break uh, while we are coming to and from uh, our worship together. We're continuing our study tonight of the uh, book of Colossians. We are in uh, chapter uh, 4 of the book, and uh, all of the verses are on the one uh, slide on the screen uh, tonight. <clears throat> the, we will be uh, considering Colossians chapter 4, uh, verses 2 through six. And you recall from our uh, last uh, study that we had uh, dealt in the previous section of the epistle, Paul did, dealt with reciprocal relationships. That is, uh, wives and husbands, uh, children and uh, parents. And then in verse 22 of chapter three, uh, he addressed the matter of bondservants and Masters, And in chapter 4, verse 1, a continuation of that discussion into the new chapter, uh, he dealt with the masters and admonished them to give their bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And then he moves to uh, general admonitions, uh, not the, the reciprocal relationships that he has been dealing with, but an admonition to all of the Christians at Colossae and, of course, thus to all of us who are Christians today. And the admonition in verse 2 begins, continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Continue in prayer. And that reminds us of another of his epistles we have studied fairly recently, and that's the First Thessalonian letter. You remember that very short but poignant uh, admonition that's given in First Thessalonians 5.17? Pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. And obviously, as we noted then, that's not a 24-7 uh, admonition. That's an impossibility, and Paul had nothing of that nature in mind. But what he did have in mind was to maintain a continual prayer life, but not just a prayer life, but a, a fervent prayer life. And the word earnestly uh, here in this text indicates the kind of fervency, the kind of attention, the kind of devotion, if you will, that we are to give to our prayer life. It would be, um, it would be fairly easy to fall into a ritualistic kind of, 
uh, approach to prayer if we did not uh, guard against that. We don't just say our prayers, we truly pray our prayers. And that, that's what we are reminded of here, that prayer needs to be something that is precious indeed to the child of God, something that is a precious privilege, that is a singular privilege, a privilege that belongs only to the child of God, remember? Because Proverbs 28, 9, that Old Testament passage says, He who turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. And so, granted, the law that the Proverbs writer had in mind was a different law than the law we serve under, but the principle is the same. When you turn your ear away from hearing the law of God, in this case the law of Christ, then you have lost the precious privilege of, of prayer, something that's vitally important or should be vitally important to every child of God. Continue in it, Paul says, to these Colossians, and thus to those of us uh, who are Christians in this day and time. Continue in it, but continue in it how? Earnestly. Now drop down with me to verse 12. We'll come to verse 12, of course, uh, the Lord willing, in the uh, uh, concluding part of our study of Colossians, but there's a man, Epaphras, here. Epaphras is one of you, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you. Epaphras was with Paul, obviously, at this time, but the indication clearly is that Epaphras was from Colossae. But he was in Rome with Paul at this time, because remember, we are studying a prison epistle written from the prison in Rome, where Paul was a prisoner. But he mentions Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you. But notice this statement, always laboring, notice it, fervently for you in prayers. Epaphras is the example of the uh, admonition, a living example that Paul refers to of the admonition he is giving to all of us back up here in verse 2 to continue earnestly in prayer. Epaphras was a man who did just that. And in this case he says he's laboring fervently for you in prayers to what end? For what purpose? What are the specifics of his prayer for you Colossians? That you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. And then verse 13 there he says, For I bear him witness that he has a great zeal for you and those who are in Laodicea and those who are in Hierapolis. Epaphras was uh, obviously from Colossae. But he had a great love and concern for those who were Christians at Laodicea, those who were Christians at Hierapolis, and his prayer life was one that is worthy of our emulation. He labored, he strove fervently in prayer. And we're to do the same. Continue, but not just continue praying, but continue earnestly in prayer. But notice he adds something else to it here in this uh, second verse of chapter 4. Being vigilant in it, being watchful in prayer, being watchful in prayer. And that may indicate the idea of being watchful or vigilant about the things for which we should be praying. We need to be very considerate of the content of our prayers and include those things in our prayers that, uh, that uh, indicate a vigilance about our prayers, our prayers for others, our prayers for the sick, our prayers for the church, our prayers for our own forgiveness, obviously, for our strength, for our growth. On and on and on the list could go, but the point is we need to be watchful about the content of our prayer and, of course, watchful and vigilant as we are living our 
lives, and as we are prayerful individuals, we are to be watchful or vigilant. This same word, vigilant, is seen over in another uh, passage in uh, Peter's writings. You remember 1 Peter 5 and verse 8, be sober, be vigilant. Same word uh, that Paul uses in Colossians 4 too. Vigilant, being watchful. But in the case of Peter's context here, he says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So we're to be vigilant in the prayer life itself, in the content of our prayer, what we include in our prayers, watchful in our prayers, but watchful obviously in the lives that we live as we lead prayerful lives. Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it, but then there's something else here still with thanksgiving. That's the pervasive, that's the pervasive quality, and we've talked about it before, the pervasive quality that is, that which undergirds everything in our lives as Christians is an attitude of what? Thanksgiving, an expression of thanksgiving. Is there any time in the life of one who is truly living as a child of God where he or she has absolutely nothing for which he or she can be thankful? The answer is no. You will never, you will never, no matter how adverse the circumstances are, and there are those who have been, in adverse circumstances. Some here tonight who are in adverse circumstances from the standpoint of sickness, the standpoint of family sickness, the standpoint of challenges that are severe challenges, serious challenges. And certainly we sympathize, yes, empathize with uh, our brothers and sisters in those situations. But we also remind those brothers and sisters and ourselves and should remind ourselves constantly that even during those struggles, even during those times that are most difficult in our lives and the challenges that we face, we are still to be thankful because there is always something for which to be thankful. And the one thing for which we can be continually most thankful, if we're faithful, is that we are faithful to God and therefore we are in the Lord. And therefore, as Paul elsewhere wrote, we can what? Rejoice in the Lord. We can rejoice in the Lord and be thankful to God that our struggles can be better met, can be better met because we are in the Lord. And without the Lord, those struggles could truly be overwhelming and not only bring about our discouragement, but our ultimate despair and perhaps our spiritual destruction. We dare not let that happen because Paul emphasizes not only here but elsewhere in his writings that pervasive quality of thanksgiving that is to be always a part of our lives. It's reminiscent of another statement in another of the prison epistles in Philippians chapter 4. Remember verses 6 and 7 of Philippians 4? Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. See, there's that same with thanksgiving phrase that he uses in the Colossian uh, verse we're studying. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. The peace of God cannot be taken away from us by external circumstances. Not if we don't allow those external circumstances to take us from that peace or to rob us of that peace. 
we have the peace, not as the world gives. Remember what Jesus said to the disciples in John 14, 27, Peace I give to you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. We, if we're children of God tonight, have the peace that surpasses understanding. And we need to hold on to that peace and be thankful for that peace that comes from the knowledge of our forgiveness and that we are in that wonderful covenant relationship with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and with brothers and sisters in Christ who love us and who are going to help us and pray for us and do all they can to assist us in the struggling times that we face, times many of you have faced and even now are facing. And so that attitude of thanksgiving is a pervasive attitude. But you know something? The Apostle Paul in verse 3 is going to remind us that an apostle of Jesus Christ needed the prayers of just plain ordinary Christians. And there is no such thing as a plain ordinary Christian, is there really? But many would say, well, here's an apostle. He's, here's one who is uh, part of the hierarchy in the church. Well, there is no hierarchy. There are those with greater responsibilities and those who have oversight, as in elders. But all of us share the spiritual blessings equally in Christ Jesus. And all of us, regardless of who we are or in what role we find ourselves serving God in the church, whether it's as elders, deacons, preachers, uh, whatever it may be, we all need each other, and we all need the prayers of each other. And Paul reminds us of that when he continues to write in verse 3, Meanwhile, praying also for us. And the us, I don't believe, is an editorial use here. Most likely it includes not only Paul, but men like Epaphras and others who were with him at the time he wrote this epistle. And beginning at verse 7, he's going to mention some of them, Tychicus and and uh, Onesimus and Aristarchus and others that are mentioned in the latter part of this epistle. So I think his request for prayers here would include all of those who were with him. Pray for us. Pray for us what? Pray for poor pitiful me. Because look at me, I've been in prison, I don't deserve to be here, but I'm here. Is that what he does? No. No. Don't pray for us in that sense. Don't pray for me in that sense. But pray that what? That God would open to us a door. For the word. Here's the Apostle Paul still more concerned about lost souls than about his personal welfare. He is in prison in Rome, but he's praying that God, through his providence, would open a door for the what? The word. That the word might be spread. Is he saying, I pray that God will open these prison doors and let me out? I don't think so in this immediate context because we know that from Acts 28 we have a record of Paul's imprisonment at Rome, his first imprisonment, where he was chained to a guard but where he was free to have people come and go to him and that there were some of Caesar's household who had been converted to Christ as a result of that contact. So when he prays that God would open a door, we don't take that to be literally the door of the prison, though certainly that would have been nice and would have given him even more freedom to preach the gospel. And from his first imprisonment, uh, the record indicates that he was ultimately freed. But the Apostle Paul used his imprisonment as an occasion to preach the gospel to those who came to him and went from him in various capacities because that was his primary goal, was to reach 
lost souls. Pray that God will open a door so that we can speak what? The mystery. Now we've already talked about the mystery and what is it? Not some mysterious kind of thing that cannot be known, but generally it has reference to what? The fact that the Gentiles were to become recipients of the gospel. Paul was primarily an apostle to the Gentiles and he is praying here that God would open a door so that he could continue to be that apostle to the Gentiles, to proclaim to the Gentiles that they were the recipients, that they had a right to the gospel of Christ, and that he would have an opportunity to make that more fully known to as many people as possible for as long as he lived. But notice this. He says, I want to I preach more of that word, that mystery, the gospel, for which I am also in chains. Here's a man who says, the very thing that is responsible for my being in prison is the very thing I want to have more opportunity to preach. You know, a lot of people might say, well, I'm here because of preaching the gospel, and that's why I'm in prison, so I'm just going to stay quiet, and, and God doesn't expect me to do anything where I am. No, that was not his attitude. He said, I want to have more opportunity to preach that for which I am now a prisoner. Now, you remember how all this came about, don't you? Remember back in, uh, in Acts 22 when he uh, there came uh, to Jerusalem and uh, in 21, 22, Paul was arrested there. Remember in chapter 22, beginning of verse 1, he made his defense, you remember, before those Jews there in Jerusalem and uh, began to speak to them in the Hebrew language, and they all kept silent as he began to speak. And then he went through his history as a Jew, as a Pharisee, and what had happened to him and how he had been converted, how zealous he was, how he had persecuted uh, the church. Then he recounts his, uh, his conversion and uh, goes into some detail uh, there. And then verse 21 of Acts 22, remember, that's when he said, Then he said to me, meaning the Lord, he, the Lord, said to me, Paul, Depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. The next statement is, And they listened to him until this word. And then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. Why? Because he mentioned Gentiles. To the Jewish audience there, he mentioned that he was sent by God to the Gentiles and they could not stand that. That led to his arrest. Then he had to be taken uh, secretly down to Caesarea because of the plot to kill him. It was there at Caesarea that he appealed to Caesar and as a result of his appeal to Caesar, he was transported to Rome and that's where he is when he writes Colossians in this Roman prison. So he says that I may speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in chains. That's where we go, back to Acts 22 when he began that speech that led him to where he is at the time that he writes the Colossian letter about A.D. 62 or A.D. 63. But he says, to speak the mystery, the mystery of Christ, that is the gospel, especially to the Gentiles, that I for which I am also in change, then look at verse 4, that I may make it manifest or clear as I ought to speak. Now, Paul was an inspired man. When Paul preached, he preached by inspiration. 
But here he asked for prayers specifically for himself that he might speak as he ought to speak. I think this deals with the how of his speaking. In other words, the manner in which he spoke. The Holy Spirit did not interfere with the personalities of the men who were inspired, either in their writing style or obviously in their speaking style. They differed in terms of their speaking styles. Remember Barnabas? Uh, Barnabas was the son of exhortation or consolation. Uh, there was Apollos who was a very eloquent man. So they had differing speaking styles just as speakers do uh, today. And attitudes, no doubt, because they were human beings, could be expressed that were not the best attitudes even though the truth was being expressed. The Apostle Paul said he needed the prayers of brothers and sisters in Christ that he would speak as he ought to speak. Reminds us of what he wrote in another of the prison epistles, the Ephesian letter. And you remember at Ephesians 4 and verse 15 he said, But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. Speaking the truth in love. The Apostle Paul obviously felt the need of prayers of his brothers and sisters in Christ for him that he would be as effective as he could be in the manner in which he presented the truth that he was inspired to preach. And therefore, preachers today, but not just preachers, not just elders, not just deacons, not just those who are serving the church in some official capacity, but all Christians should desire to manifest that same kind of attitude that is most conducive to the conversion of those with whom we have opportunity to have contact and influence. And in fact, in fact, the Apostle Paul makes it abundantly clear in this very next uh, statement or two that not only preachers or apostles in his case needed that kind of wisdom to speak as they ought to speak, but that every Christian should also be concerned about that. Let's go on. Verse 5, walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. You see, that has everything to do with not only our actions, but it also has to do with our attitudes and our speech toward those who are what? Who are outside. First of all, he says walk. And that simply reminds us of something we've talked about quite often, and that is the Christian life is a walk. It is keeping going. It is a continual Process. It's not spasmodic. It's not a hit or miss. It's not a stop and start. It is a continual walk. It is described as a race. It is described as a fight. It's described by various uh, illustrations in Scripture that remind us of the need to keep on keeping on. But as we walk, we're to walk in wisdom. How do we get wisdom? From the Word of God and the proper application of the Word of God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. The writer of Proverbs wrote in Proverbs 1 in verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Where do we learn of that fear, that reverence for God in his word? But fools despise what? Wisdom and instruction. This is the source of instruction. This is the source of wisdom. 
If we're going to walk in wisdom, you can't spend precious little time with this book and still expect to walk in wisdom toward anyone, those without or those within for that matter. But when he says toward those who are outside, or some translations say those who are without, he's talking about those outside the body of Christ, those who are not Christians. How important is it that those who are Christians manifest the right kind of attitude and the right kind of action toward those who are not children of God, those who are not New Testament Christians, those with whom we work, those with whom we go to school, uh, those with whom we have contact in various uh, aspects of our lives. How important is it that we walk in wisdom? Important enough that an inspired apostle told us to make sure that we do it. Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside. It's a very similar admonition, again, to the one he gave the Thessalonian uh, church in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 12, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. Walk properly toward those who are outside. And what about the, what about the elders in the church? Uh, did the Apostle Paul have anything to say to elders about this particular uh, aspect of, of their lives? Yes, he did. Look at verse 7 of 1 Timothy 3 where the qualifications of elders are given. Moreover, he, the elder, must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. You think that it is a shame for one who serves a congregation as an elder to have a terrible reputation in the community as being a uh, crooked businessman, as being one who, who doesn't deal fairly and justly with, uh, with those with whom he comes into contact in the day-to-day -day business world? Well, it's a terrible shame. Of course it is. Therefore, there must be that consistency toward those who are without. And remember that our ultimate goal is to what? lead them to Christ. How can we do that unless we walk in wisdom toward them, unless we manifest the spirit of Christ, the attitude of Christ, the mind of Christ in our lives? We dare not let our guard down, in other words, in our day-to-day -day lives or consciously or subconsciously separate our Christianity to a worship-type situation and then one that is away from worship where we're two different people. No, we must be consistent. Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside. Then notice this expression in verse 5. Redeeming the time. Redeeming the time. Literally, that means to buy up the opportunity. To buy up the opportunity. You realize that when we go out into the world every day, we go out into a marketplace, as it were. As Christians, we go out into a marketplace where we have opportunities to buy opportunities, where we have opportunities that we can purchase, opportunities that come our way, that we need to be aware of, looking for, ready to take advantage of, and to do what we can to influence those who give us that opportunity. You can't go out and knock people over the head or whatever and drag them in and put them into the baptistry, obviously, but there are opportunities. Now, granted, we may live in a time where those opportunities are fewer than they have ever been. But that doesn't change the attitude with which we are to approach our daily lives in terms of looking for those opportunities, praying about those opportunities, and praying that God will open a door for us through His providence, that we can have an opportunity 
to have an influence over someone to lead that one to Christ, redeeming the time, buying up the opportunity. Now, there's a sense in which this word redeem is literally meaning to buy back in the sense of Christ's uh, sacrifice for us. That's redemption in the sense that he bought us back. We, were, we sold out. We sold out through sin, and he bought us back by his blood. But there's also the meaning of the word that indicates buying up an opportunity, and that is looking for those opportunities, making good use, the best use we have of the time that God has granted us. Now, what about your speech, Christian? Verse 6, Paul says, let your speech... Earlier he had said, pray for me that I may speak as I ought to speak. But that leads him to this admonition in the final verse we'll look at tonight. Let your speech, every child of God, let your speech always be what? With grace. Speech with grace. Grace is the favor of God, but it's favor, isn't it? Let your speech be favorable speech, I believe, would be the idea here. And I think it, the meaning here is closely related to something that is said about our Lord in Luke chapter 4. Look at that passage in Luke chapter 4 and verse 22. And I believe that it is closely related to what Paul is uh, admonishing here. In verse 22 of Luke 4, after verse 21, where he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This is where he was in the synagogue, and he quoted from Isaiah's prophecy, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and then he said, today I'm fulfilling the scripture in your ears. I am the one about whom Isaiah prophesied. And verse 21, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now look at verse 22 of Luke 4. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? They marveled at his what? The gracious words. The kind, sweet words. The words of truth that were uttered by our Lord. That's who we should emulate in terms of our speech. doesn't mean that we can't ever express righteous anger. He did. But in our day-to-day -day dealings with individuals, our speech should be Gracious speech, speech that is designed to gain the favor. Doesn't mean we compromise truth. We can't do that. The Lord never did, obviously, and never admonished us to do the same. But let's be wise as serpents, harmless as doves, as the Lord elsewhere taught in Matthew ten sixteen, and let us endeavor to have our speech be with grace. Gracious words. Notice something else about our speech. Seasoned with salt. Now, there have been some who have indicated they thought that salt here might indicate throw in a little bit of wit and humor. And uh, I, I personally don't believe the context supports uh, that. Although, that, that's not to say that we can never use uh, any wit in the proper manner or, or humor uh, in our uh, conversations and exchanges with individuals. That's not to say that we cannot. But I don't think that I don't believe the immediate context uh, supports that idea here. I think it's more closely related to the idea that salt is a preserving power and a flavoring uh, element. It adds flavor, doesn't it, to your food. 
It also is used to preserve meats, of course, and that preservation power. And I believe it's related to what the Lord himself taught in Matthew 5, 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, it is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and trodden under the foot of men. You're the salt of the earth. That is, you are the preservation, the preserving power. The Christian is the preserving power uh, in the world today. Uh, The Christian is the world's only hope, really, and his influence and his power. And we need to exert that influence. Young people need to exert that influence, among other young people. Those of us who are older need to exert that influence. Every single one of us needs to exert that kind of influence. How do we do it? With a speech that is gracious, seasoned with salt. And that you may what? That you may know how you ought to answer each one. It's interesting that back up in verse 4, the word ought there... The same word, ought, down here in verse 6, when Paul says that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak, the idea of ought there is must, have to, must do it. Well, here, know how you ought to answer, how you must do it. In other words, we have an obligation to defend the Lord and defend the faith. And so we need to labor in such a way as to have enough knowledge to be able to give an answer or to at least say, I don't don't know the answer to that particular question, but I can get an answer for you, and I will get that answer. It reminds us of 1 Peter 3.15, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to everyone who asks you a reason of the hope that is in you, yet with meekness and fear. And we need to be ready always to give that answer to answer graciously, to answer with meekness and fear, that is reverence and respect for God, but also, I believe, in Peter's account, Peter's passage there, 1 Peter 3, 15, fear meaning respect also for the one to whom we are giving the answer. And so tremendously practical admonitions in these verses we have studied tonight. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. As we look at that last verse, we are reminded that you cannot give an answer effectively for your faith unless you have that faith and unless you are in the faith, which is Christianity. And so tonight as we close, we plead with you, if you haven't obeyed the gospel of Christ, to do so, that you may then carry out these and so many other admonitions that are exciting admonitions in effect. Exciting because they give you opportunity to reach precious souls that you don't have now if you're not living as a Christian. You can't do that outside of Christ. You can only do that in Christ. And you can only be in Christ by believing in Christ, repenting of your sins, confessing Him as the Christ, and then being buried with him in baptism for the forgiveness of sins. If you haven't done those things, we plead with you to do that. And if you have not, as a child of God, continued to walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, and that's clearly known and needs to be repented of publicly so that that influence can be restored and so that your relationship with God, most importantly, can be restored. If you need to come home to your first love in repentance, we plead with you to do that tonight. As we stand to